Hello and welcome to the one-year anniversary edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. In this episode, we'll look at the intangible, highly subjective and contentious symbolic element that has an arguable place in self-protection discussions. I hope you enjoyed the show. The infamous container that Pandora opened was not a box, but a jar. An errant translation of the original Greek poem by Hesiod has led us to use the idiom and retell the tale under the title Pandora's Box. This is not the only problem with the interpretation of this tale. The story, if you're not aware, concerns that of Epimetheus and his wife Pandora, the world's first mortal woman. They live in a paradise world of constant springtime. No one feels anger or spite towards one another. There is no sickness, hunger or sadness. No one grows old or dies. One day, Epimetheus is entrusted with a sealed vessel, which he gives to his wife for safekeeping, with the explicit instructions that it must not be opened. However, once Pandora is left alone in the house, she's taunted by her own curiosity. She cannot leave the mysterious item alone. More entertaining versions of the story feature Pandora being intrigued first by the sounds of soft fluttering wings inside the jar and then chanting voices begging her to release them for the world is incomplete without their presence. After some deliberation and internal conflict, Pandora breaks the seal and releases the stopper. The story swiftly turns into a tale of terror as the owners of the voices quickly reveal themselves to be the personification of all the evils humanity has yet to know. Usually represented by a series of different winged creatures, they fly into the world, stinging and biting the entirety of humankind. Pandora, afflicted by the mortality of age and a wide range of new negative emotions, struggles to force the stopper back. One last exertion allows her to reseal the container. Some later versions say that she was able to stop foreboding from getting out, but we will come to that later. Pandora is immediately attacked by her husband, who has been stung by anger and unkindness, introducing his wife, to more newly discovered miserable feelings. Going by Greek myth tradition, the creation of both Pandora and the jar were curses vengefully inflicted on mortals by the gods. Mankind had been created by the titan Prometheus, Epimetheus's brother. He had then stolen fire from Olympus to benefit his creations. Zeus had punished him for this theft by chaining him to a rock for eternity, where he would suffer all manner of torments, the worst being having his liver eaten by an eagle every day, the liver then regenerate in order to repeat the torture. This punishment not being enough, Zeus had his gods create womankind in the form of Pandora. Individually, different goddesses bestowed upon her various gifts that would endear her to Epimetheus. Pandora's name means all gifts. Prometheus apparently originally warned his brother not to accept gifts from the gods, fearing reprisals for stealing the fire. However, once the game was up and he was condemned to his rock, Epimetheus decided to err on the side of caution and accept Pandora as his wife. There is no ignoring the core misogyny in this story. There are many comparable tales found in other ancient cultures that reinforce male insecurities about women and are often used to justify oppressive institutionalised patriarchies. Arguments have been made that the story of Pandora is not strictly speaking a genuine myth. Hesiod possibly created the story from older myths that he worked into a parable blatantly targeted against women in general. This was first done in his poem Theogony, where the unnamed first woman is described as a general blight on mankind, and then in his poem Works and Days, where he retells and expands upon this story, naming the woman Pandora and telling her most famous tale. However, 
Whilst it would be disingenuous not to remember this abhorrent aspect at the heart of the earliest known telling of the story, it's important to note that other elements have endured for longer. When one uses the idiom Pandora's box, it's usually meant to describe accepting a dangerous gift or to naively unleash unforeseen problems. Forgetting Hesiod's agenda, we can see a cautionary fable about the dangers of unchecked curiosity, and modern storytellers have done a good job in producing richer versions than the original that promote this and other aspects. Ancient Greece's most famous fabulist, if he did exist at all, Aesop offered an altogether different version of Pandora's box. His short tale, written a century or so later, doesn't feature Pandora and lays the problem at man's door. Rather than being given a jar of evil, Zeus bestows upon man, a characterization of mankind, a jar containing all the useful things. Lacking self-control, man opens the jar, allowing all the good things to fly back to the gods. We can easily find the most glaring message a martial artist or self-protection student might see in this story. That being, having no self-discipline or self-control can lead to terrible things. To steal a phrase from Chris Wilder, this is an easy takeaway. When one thinks of training, the value of sticking to the plan and resisting the voices, if you like, is a relatable fable and parable. The voices in Pandora's container might be comparable to the inner opponent. This is something that would be written about some 200 or so years after Hesiod's work by the great Eastern Zhou era general and military strategist Sun Tzu in his famous treatise, The Art of War. Sun Tzu talked about handling one's inner demons with care so as not to result in self-destruction, but to ensure they were pruned enough as to not hold one back. Sun Tzu clearly recognised that such critics were an integral part of a warrior perhaps safeguarding against foolhardiness and gung-ho decision-making, and preach control rather than exorcism of these demons. This episode is not about the nature of fear, but if it was, there is definitely something in Sun Tzu's ancient counsel about understanding the difference between recognising survival signals and, to quote one fear acronym, allowing false evidence to appear real. Although I appreciate this might be a limitation on language and metaphor, it's interesting to note that many coaches describe putting the inner opponent back in their box. We often think of negativity as a separate entity comparable to a jinn or genie of African and Middle Eastern mythology, which can be contained in a metaphorical container. However, Sun Tzu acknowledges that there is far more to it than this, and we might see his advice to be in line with the way science observes the way natural body defences work effectively, and also how they can run amok. Modern physical health and self-motivation culture promotes the concept that when an individual pushes themselves outside of their comfort zone, they will be mentally challenged to give up. Our mind, being a part of our body, has evolved to survive and is hardwired into conserving energy and to avoid unnecessary injury. This has a subliminal impact on our life in virtually every aspect. The pioneering physiologist Archibald Hill and professor of exercise and sport Tom Noakes put forward arguments in 1924 and 1997, respectively, for an argument that is now being labelled the central governor theory. Hill and Noakes observed the relationship with the brain and the rest of the body when under intensive activity. Hill put it that the central governor kicked in to save the heart from anoxia, neurologically reducing muscle fibre recruitment when the body was exerted, causing the symptoms of fatigue. This view was not accepted by mainstream science at the time. The competing and prevailing theory is that fatigue is a result of mechanical failure. Noakes supported Hill's hypothesis and further proposed that the central governor recalculates levels of exertion based on experience. The theory has been taken further by others expanding upon the concept of overriding the central governor. High intensity interval training has often been used as a means to reset the central governor applying discipline to fight against the primal urge not to expend energy. Arnold Schwarzenegger famously put it, The mind poops out before the body does. 
Please, no emails about Arnie's unfortunate incident on the set of Predator that seems to literally disprove these words. The ancient Greeks, being the legendary philosophers and thinkers that they were, understood that in order to make any sort of change beyond basic survival, they needed discipline. As they built their civilizations in stone and with law, they were readily exposed to inner voices that constantly echoed the fears of their hunter-gatherer ancestors. The brain being the most complex organ in any vertebrate's body, and the human brain is the most advanced in history, it's worth considering the inner argument's level of sophistication. Indeed, much of this part of the discussion is based on the premise that we have free will, which is a matter of scientific contention and an argument for a far more qualified podcaster than yours truly. Nevertheless, by the time Pandora's box had been written, the ancient Greeks, despite their reputation for liberalism, had acknowledged the problems with temptation. Three hundred years later, one of their most celebrated philosophers, Aristotle, took matters to an uncompromising extreme. He didn't even celebrate individuals who overcame temptation, believing that the most virtuous person was he who did the right thing without feeling the weakness of desire, enticement or unproductive curiosity. It's difficult to have much sympathy with the Aristotelian view on temptation and discipline. The saintly mortal with no inner struggles seems as contradictory to what we know about humanity as the warrior who does not know fear. Similarly, we need to be wary about the analogy of containing human nature. There is plenty in psychology that presents the danger of suppression. One might argue that the story of Pandora being tricked and won over by evil voices from within might be interpreted as an analogy for paranoid schizophrenia. A good portion of the reality-based self-defense world would do well in being a good deal more skeptical about their own inner voices, or more specifically the voices of social media that speak to their confirmation bias. Maybe Pandora's box is an argument for critical thinking. Nevertheless, there is one element in the story of Pandora's box that resonated with me as a child when I first heard the story and stayed with me to the present time. So far, you've been cheated of this element because we haven't looked at the story's end. Instead, we look to what appears to be the crux of the synopsis. This is what catches the imagination because the dynamic, when executed properly, comes over like a spine-chilling story. The utopian existence juxtaposed with the horrors that vomit forth from an unearthly container, sending humanity from paradise to hell. Between these two versions of Earth, we have Pandora being tortured by the temptation of gentle voices that build up to the terrifying crescendo. This is what happened next in the version I first heard. As Pandora and Epimetheus begin to take stock of their situation, listening to their beautiful world descending into chaos outside, another voice calls to them from the jar. This new, smaller voice also requests that she be let out. She explains her presence can help the current situation. A weeping and distraught Pandora asks if she's being tricked again. She turns to her husband, who offers no resistance to the request. Seeing that they have nothing left to lose, the couple release the stopper for a second time. A small wisp resembling a white moth flutters out of the jar. The creature brushes their cheeks, soothing them with their stings. The moth-like creature describes herself as hope and flies off to do battle with all the evils of the world. Upon asking Epimetheus if he thinks the world will forgive her for what she has done, he gently replies, I hope so. I hope so. Hesiod's version has Pandora keep hope from escaping the jar, which ancient Greeks often characterised as Elpis. In ancient Greek tradition, Elpis was usually depicted as a young woman carrying flowers, but somewhere she's been changed into a white moth. There is debate as to why Hesiod had hope stay under the lip of the unbreakable jar. It would appear the ancient Greeks saw hope to be more of an extension of suffering than a champion against evil. Robert Graves' The Greek Myths, Volume 1, describes the character as 
elusive hope, whose lies dissuade Pandora and Epimetheus from committing suicide. Speaking in a very different time, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche put it that hope was the greatest of all evils because it prolongs torment. The version of the story credited to Aesop appears to present hope in a better light by keeping hold of hope in the jar. The fable explains humanity has the promise of good things being bestowed upon them. Given that the jar, Aesop's story, was supposed to contain good and aptly, for the purposes of this podcast episode, useful things, we can assume that in this instance hope is not supposed to represent delusion and the extension of misery. The role of hope, nevertheless, was hotly debated during the time of ancient Greek philosophy. As a person who promotes critical thinking at the heart of my self-protection and martial arts teaching, the subject of hope is problematic. I can take it at face value, and being a non-material element, it's easy to dismiss. Like Nietzsche and some ancient Greeks, there's an easy argument to be made that hope is corrosive and a needless distraction. Furthermore, I might pigeonhole it under wishful thinking that promotes bad self-defense techniques and the decision not to train. People hope that training something might help them without doing the research or bothering to test themselves in some way. Other people hope that something bad won't happen to them rather than taking precautions to avoid it or be prepared for such a situation. They use hope as a crutch. Hope is not a technique I can test or see being disproved or vindicated on a physical basis. There are many intangible qualities that aren't represented by physical techniques, but still can be analysed and dissected in a clinical fashion. We can understand fear on a biological, neurological, societal and anthropological level. Understanding it can lead to peer-reviewed tests that yield positive changes in individuals who overcome their fears. Likewise with the development of self-control and discipline, the same can be said about awareness. These are all fairly easily clear-cut soft skills. However, there are many arguments put forward from the front line of professional violence, not to mention other traumatic experiences that argue the case for hope. And some research has been done into its validity as a method for survival. Let's look at this from the opposite end of the scale first. Consider perceived hopelessness. Because people make wrongful assumptions based on false data, they often come to erroneous ideas about something being hopeless. In his book, the Survivors Club, Ben Sherwood describes how some of the biggest problems caused during plane crashes are based on the commonly held belief that if a plane does go down, death is virtually unavoidable. This view is reinforced by the media that have long given dramatic and extensive coverage to fatal air crashes where all the passengers have been killed. Statistically speaking, in the highly unlikely event of being involved in a plane crash, you have a 95.7% chance of surviving. In the even more unlikely event of being involved in a severe plane crash, one that involves fire, injuries or substantial damage, you have a 76.6% chance of survival. The problem with perceived hopelessness is that people put themselves at greater risk, which not only includes ignoring the safety instruction before the plane takes off, but also taking shoes off, putting sleeping face masks on, effectively blindfolding themselves and drinking copious amounts of alcohol. Sherwood quotes the European Transport Council statistics that 40% of fatalities in plane crashes around the world occur in situations that are survivable. In other words, 600 out of 1,500 fatalities happened due to what the victims did or didn't do during the crash. One might also see hopelessness as an aspect of fear. In the wild, some prey animals have evolved to switch off at a certain point when they have been attacked by a predator. Perhaps this saves them from more pain. Humans have described similar behaviour when at the mercy of an attacker. Being paralysed by fear might be part of the reason. The human being, like many other animals, defaulted to the freeze part of the fight-flight-freeze biological response. However, many have also described their predicament as simply giving in. 
Although it could be argued that this is another survival tactic, which arguably worked for those who lived to tell the tale, it might also be interpreted as hopelessness. Some survivors, who have simply given in, aren't even relying on the hope that they won't be killed or further injured by their attacker. They're accepting their fate. For every person who is desperate to know what can be done in every type of hypothetical assault, there appears to be many who simply decide they would do nothing if they were met with violence. Sadly, by buying into the myth of hopelessness, this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Therefore, if it might be argued that hopelessness contributes towards an ineffective attitude, does that mean that the state of having hope factors into an effective attitude? You might recall that I place attitude as the most important element in self-protection. Without an attitude of commitment to training and determination to survive, an otherwise pragmatic self-protection program might as well be a powerful castle built on a foundation of sand. Attitude has many components. They're not easy to define, but books like Sherwood's Survivors Club does a good job in categorising possible candidates for inclusion. The substantially shorter second half of the book asks the question, are you a survivor? After describing different types of survivors in order to measure what he calls the reader's survival IQ, Sherwood delivers a final chapter on 12 survival strengths or tools, explaining these are the most consistent traits of the many survivors his book has investigated, researched and interviewed. Although the book was written way back in 2007, and I don't always agree with the material being presented, particularly in this chapter, few works published before or since do such a thorough job in using science to analyse this subject and deliver it in such an accessible way. One of the 12 survival strengths is hope and his definition, in a survivor mindset, is one that has credibility. A combination of optimism and realism. To paraphrase Sherwood addressing the survivor who relies on hope, you believe good things will happen, but you aren't naive. The Survivors Club describes an attitude in hopeful survivors that remind me of the tales of the World War I trenches. If any of you have watched Peter Jackson's beautiful documentary, they shall not grow old, you will have heard some of the most vivid first-hand accounts of soldiers operating in some of the most terrible living conditions imaginable, just over a century ago, and facing the prospect of violent death every day. Whilst fighting the symptoms of disease, frostbite and ravenous armies of rats, these men were thrust unprepared into the horrors of mechanised warfare. A reoccurring character of these accounts is the sense of humour maintained by so many. Often, the humour would be the darkest type, but this was all part of not allowing the depression to consume the group. It is reasonable to suggest, as often has been suggested, that Stoicism allowed this humour to flourish. The Stoic, often associated with a dour disposition associated with fatalism and determinism, can be more positively described as a realist who accepts all of life's hardship. And yet, human nature is a complex subject, and Stoicism alone cannot be attributed to all the personalities of all the soldiers who fought a successful mental battle and helped lift the spirits of their comrades. Hope often influences humour. Ben Sherwood defined the one-two punch of hope to be belief and expectation. There's a lot to be said about belief. Many have credited their belief as the reason why they have survived difficult situations or why they achieved a certain level of success. It is the non-rational side of the brain that is nevertheless part of human evolution. However, blind belief is often the enemy of critical thinking, and there are clear reasons why belief might not always be the right attitude to adopt in survival situation. Interestingly, there is scholarly debate over the real meaning of Elpis in Greek mythology, with some translators believing her to be purely representing expectation rather than a more general idea of hope. In this vein, we can see why the final creature in the jar might be described as lying delusive hope. 
Expectation at its most counterproductive takes the form of the visualisation exercises touted by the snake oil salesmen of the self-help world, where rather than putting hard graft into achieving the objective, they try to picture their desired result first. Alone, each of these two components, belief and expectation, can be dangerous. However, according to Dr. Jerome Goodman, author of 2003's The Anatomy of Hope, and one of the experts Sherwood quotes, together they release endorphins and encephalins which mimic the effects of morphine. This brings to mind modern adaptations of Pandora's box, where the wings of the hope moth soothe the stings of the evil creatures. Quoting Dr. Jerome from Sherwood's book, quote, Hope helps us overcome obstacles that we otherwise could not scale and moves us forward to a place where healing can occur. End quote. Sherwood then adds an interesting point he absorbed from Dr. Jerome's work that, quote, Hope does not directly lead to recovery, but it contributes to survival. In scientific terms, they might not be causally connected, but they are definitely correlated. End quote. Dr. Jerome's view appears to be in complete opposition to Nietzsche's, believing that rather than offering prolonged torment in the expectation that something good will occur, hope improves the quality of life. These views need not be mutually exclusive. The application of hope, like any aspect of the survival attitude, can be detrimental or beneficial to a fighter, depending on how they are applied. Hope can torture an individual or it can motivate them. Dr. Jerome's book was praised for never completely defining hope, and a point that Sherwood does not note is that it also acknowledges the problems with false hope. This might be the hope Nietzsche was describing. False hope presents a pointless goal that can expend an individual's time and resources needlessly when they could be modifying their objectives or aiming in a more productive direction. However, in a desperate situation such as fighting for one's life, hope can easily become the one thing that stops someone from giving up completely. The first time I heard the story of Pandora's Box, I was only a child and still living on my parents' travelling circus. The story was in the 15th issue of the first magazine part work, Storyteller, published by Marshall Cavendish. To this day, there is great affection for these magazines and their accompanying cassettes. Journalists and writers of my generation have often written in to say what a great influence the series was. They had very high production values and the stories, songs and poems were an eclectic mix of some of the best stories a child could ever hope to hear or read. The version of Pandora's Box I heard is the best interpretation adaptation I have yet to come across. The story features a box containing a jar. This serves as a great way to build up tension as Pandora first fiddles and eventually opens the latches to the box before opening the jar and finally breaking the seal. This is all helped in style by using stop suspense music and echoing voice effects for the creatures that live inside the jar. It's a proper children's horror story. I later read Ina Blyton's much older version in her Tales of Long Ago that bears some similarities that are not found in any of the more ancient works. Both versions characterise the creatures as winged invertebrates. Blyton simply characterises them as creatures resembling brown moths, whereas the storyteller tale gives individual species personalities to representatives of death, hunger, old age, and many others. Finally, both the Ina Blyton and the storyteller versions of this tale characterise hope as a small white moth, which does not remain under the lid of its jar or imprisoned in the house of man, but is released into the world after soothing Pandora and Epimetheus from the stings of the other creatures. This version of the tale is the one I think of when I think about the nature of useful hope.
I'm again teaching a double seminar in March 2019 at the Blackwater Leisure Centre, Malden, Essex in the UK. The first two hours will be part of my When Parents Aren't Around Children's Self-Protection Programme starting at 11am and the last three hours starting at 1.30pm will be part of my Vagabond Warriors Martial Arts Cross Training Programme. Hope to see some of you there. Please book your tickets through Lee Mullen of K. Roo Practical Karate. I'm very honoured to be invited to teach for Lee's Club, who has kindly opened its doors to anyone interested in attending. I no longer teach regular classes, so this is an opportunity for those of you who live a bit too far afield to attend my private lessons to experience the Club Chimera martial arts approach. Links are in the show notes to this episode. I'd like to thank again all the listeners for your support with this show. It's great to be into my second year of podcasting, and I hope that the episodes are improving and bringing you the sort of material that you look for. Please don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as check out the clubchimera.com website. There is new content going up there all the time. I will get onto Instagram as soon as I can start arranging some footage. Please send in feedback and like, share, and subscribe to support my work. As promised, I'll be dropping in some unofficial extra audio content on this podcast feed soon. I won't be advertising these on the show, and they'll be of miscellaneous subjects, so please keep subscribed. The regular show's next official episode is called The Way of the Wolf, where we'll be looking at a darker aspect of the martial arts mindset. Thanks for listening.